know, I get writers list now from my agency and they are diverse. Whereas before you used to have to say, uh, guys, come on, there no, they're no, no black people on this list, like seriously. But again, you know, we have a long way to go, but it has gotten better. Hello, and welcome to Acting Up, the podcast that dives deep into the world of TV and film and highlights our people, our communities, and our stories. I'm your host, Courtney Wills, Entertainment Director at The Grio, and this week we are speaking with some really fabulous women. We've got Deborah Martin Chase, who is one of the goats when it comes to representation in Hollywood. The magnificent Denine Milner, creator of My Brown Baby, and Lexi Underwood, whose work and roles are already making a huge impact. So bear with me, guys. This week, I am on the struggle bus, and that is because my daughter is turning six. I can't believe that she's six years old. The baby stage is over. She wants to be very involved in what she wears, what she watches, what we're doing for her birthday. And of course, like so many other six-year-olds, she wants everything to be princess. When she thinks princesses, she thinks of Belle. She thinks of Ariel. She thinks of Rapunzel. Cinderella, Snow White, and so many other princesses who don't look like her. I'm grateful that Tiana exists, but that's one brown face in the crowd, whether I'm looking for party favors or toys. The group is still Tiana and five white girls. It makes me really think about what effect that has on her. I'm going back and forth right now because what does she want to do for her birthday? She wants to straighten her hair. She's got the most beautiful tight curls all the way up to her chin and she wants to look like Rapunzel. She wants to play Tangled. She wants to identify with her on-screen heroes and That's made me think that that's something we should talk about here on Acting Up because we're constantly thinking about representation, particularly when it comes to Black women. But where does that representation start? So I decided that we should examine what's going on in the world of representation when it comes to kids programming. Where have we made strides and where can we still see some major improvements? I wanted to talk to a woman who has had so much to do with the representation that we have seen of ourselves on screen for such a long time. Deborah Martin Chase is a prolific Hollywood executive who has been behind some really impactful projects and some really huge careers. A little bit of background on Deborah. She was a successful lawyer. One of her clients was Columbia Studios, which kind of got her immersed in the film world. Eventually, she made the jump to Hollywood. She kind of started over, learned the ropes, and eventually ran Denzel Washington's production company. Mundy Lane Entertainment. Then she spent five years running Whitney Houston's imprint, Brown House Productions. In 2000, she formed her own company, Martin Chase Productions, and went on to executive produce Rogers and Hammerstein's Cinderella, the infamous Cinderella, the Black Cinderella, the Brandy and Whitney and Whoopi Cinderella. That was Deborah Martin Chase. Deborah's work with Disney was hugely impactful and not just to audiences of color. She produced The Princess Diaries with Anne Hathaway and Julie Andrews. She was behind Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, the freaking Cheetah Girls. That was all Deborah Martin Chase. Her latest project made all kinds of noise when it debuted right after the Super Bowl on CBS. I'm talking about The Equalizer starring Queen Latifah in 
a role that was also played by Chase's old pal, Denzel Washington. See how she connects the dots? So I'm talking to Deborah today. She is calling me from the set of the show that has already been picked up for a second season and is, again, making a huge impact on representation. We've got Queen Latifah playing this kick-ass assassin slash mom. We've got this lovely young actress, Leia DeLeon Hayes, who, shocker, is the voice of Doc McStuffins. Deborah, did you know you cast Doc McStuffins in The Equalizer? You know, I don't know that I knew Leia was the voice of Doc McStuffins. Girl, when I tell you that once once I realized it, once I saw her face, like I, I can't unhear it now. Now when I like rewatch The Equalizer, I'm like... That is Doc McStuffins. <laughs> That's so interesting. I did not know that. Yes. Yeah, so the next time you see a Doc McStuffins clip, you are going to trip. <laughs> That's good information. Yes. And it's really a good intro into what I really wanted to speak to you about, which is representation for Black children and Black women in general, but how that really does start with the children. My daughter is going to turn six next week. When she watched Cinderella, your Cinderella, with Brandy and her beautiful braids, it almost knocked her down that there was a Cinderella there with braids like her mom at the time I had braids in. I mean, it just blew her little mind. And I instantly thought of you and the conversations that we've had about even you pushing that project through. You know, listen, this is why I got in the business. Because when I was coming up, I didn't see people who looked like me or looked like us on screen. And so, you know, I grew up with that Leslie Ann Warren version of Cinderella that I waited annually with bated breath to see. But I know what it would have meant to me to have seen a Black Cinderella. You know, it's it's been part of my mission since I've been in Hollywood. Yeah. You and I have spoken before about the impact that that Cinderella Brandy is the princess and Whitney as the godmother. Like we've spoken about the impact that had at that time, but to see that exact project have a similar impact, however many years later, is just pretty remarkable. It's huge. It was so gratifying to see the the celebration of young and old at Cinderella, you know, coming on to, to Disney Plus and there is, and someone said this early on, and, and, and when you think about it, it's really true, there is kind of a lineage between Cinderella and Bridgerton, which was delicious, you know, is was still kind of singular, you know, what made it so popular in part was the freshness of it. And the fact that here we are with the span in between the two, and Cinderella is still relevant for its multicultural casting, and Bridgerton because of becomes a phenomenon because of its multicultural casting and there hasn't been a lot in between the two. You know, my daughter, while I can sit here and say Black Cinderella blew her mind, she's had the Doc McStuffins. You know, that was on when she started watching TV and she had Tiana at Disney and still she feels and she internalizes that lack of representation. We have to have 30 or 40 kids books on the shelves right now with little Black kids on the cover and it's still not actually changing her perspective the way that I set out to make sure that I was doing, you know, and that's a little disheartening. Well, because the still the overwhelming preponderance of the images bombarding her are white girls. 
Mm-hmm. And also, you know, I think one of the reasons why Cinderella is so important because it's aspirational. It's that we can be princesses and reaffirming that we are beautiful and we can wear fabulous, fancy dresses and still be smart and, you know, kind of all those fun things. You know, you want, we want it all. We want to have the opportunity to be anything that we want to be. So we need things that reinforce that. When I sit and I look at your portfolio of work, whether it was working with Whitney or helping Denzel cultivate his career and his movie slate, when we talk about Black actors, when you talk about aspirational, those are the names that come up. Queen Latifah, Denzel Washington. I don't think that that's a coincidence. The commonality between so many of these people is you. I think it's also that we related to each other. That's why we work together. The first time I met Denzel, we talked for like an hour and a half and we realized that we saw the world the same way, that we had a vision for what kind of stories we wanted to tell. I met Queen Latifah the week that set it off open, okay? We were both at the William Morris Agency. They arranged for us to have dinner. And so we've been friends ever since. A decade ago, we did Just Right Together, actually here at the Izod Center. We shot all the basketball stuff. And Just Right in and of itself, that kind of Black rom-com, Cinderella-like, but grounded in reality, hadn't really been done. Or someone who looks like Latifah being the girl that gets the hot guy at the end. That's right. Being desirable, being the romantic comedy lead, those parts never went to people who looked like her. And it was the same thing with Beauty Shop. You know, it was like she, this woman who is confident and self-sufficient and not a size zero and not Brazilian blowout to the floor is going to get that guy. I remember then being like, yes. And I think I was a teenager when I came out. So always, I mean, that's the through line to me when I really look at your work and it's evident what we see on the screen, but I want to talk about what that actually looks like behind the scenes. I had a vision. I realized that I had a voice. I had something to say. I just knew from being in the world, from my perspective, that these stories could resonate with people that there was an audience that was dying for the Cheetah Girls. You know, they'd never been done before with these girls of color who were proud of who they were, but didn't grow up in the projects, who wanted to be stars and speak languages and travel the world. And, you know, funny story, I developed that for the Disney Channel originally as a television series. At that time, at least, television series had to be approved by the international divisions. And when they sent out the script, the international division came back and said, oh, we can't sell this. This is not real. Nobody's going to buy that these brown and black girls are living on Park Avenue and kind of fancy. I was so pissed off. And to his credit, Gary Marsh, who's the head of the Disney Channel then and now, said, well, I can't control the TV series, but if you turn it into a movie, that I I have say over. So we did, and it worked gangbusters, and we ended up having this franchise. So, you know, it was tough. I fought really hard for most things, but I believed in them, and I believed that there would be an audience for them. It's changed tremendously, and that's in the last, you know, let's say, for maybe five years. So if you want to go back to the Denzel days, 
and, and I, I did not produce Philadelphia, right. but our company was based at TriStar and they were putting together Philadelphia. And I remember having lunch with the executive and saying like, well, why can't the lawyer be Black? And he was like, well, it wasn't written Black. And I was like, well, let's just walk through this for a minute. <laughs> like, what does he do in this movie that would be different if he were Black? And at the end, the guy was like, oh, I never really thought about it like this. So we were at that point where, I mean, it was just basic casting was an issue, right? It was like, if it's not written Black, we shouldn't even think about doing anything else. So those were some of his battles. I mean, I can also remember when he did Pelican Brief with Julia Roberts, and it Ooh. was a big deal. It was Julia Roberts' comeback. You know, she'd been America's darling and then taken a break. John Grisham book, Alan Pakula was directing, and she wanted him as her co-star. Warner Brothers was really hesitant about having a Black man co-star with America's Sweetheart. And she basically gave them an ultimatum and gave them like 24 hours to get their act together and make his deal or she was walking. And that's how it ended up happening. But they still took their revenge because if you look at a lot of the one sheets, it's Julia and John Grisham and he's here in the corner. All of this progress later, all of these years later, all of these declarations and achievements and strides later, and like, have the actual issues really changed? Or, you know, do they just look different? I mean, there has been change, honestly. I mean, we still have a long way to go, but there has been change. Just the basic stuff like people are making an effort to hire women and Black directors. Now, there's a pipeline problem because for so long, there were not opportunities for people of color and women in staffing network TV shows or directing network TV shows or basically in all areas of network TV because network TV, particularly hour-long drama, there have not been that many Black people and white shows would not hire Black people. You know, I get writers lists now from my agency and they are diverse. Whereas before you used to have to say, uh, guys, no Black people on this list, like seriously. But again, you know, we have a long way to go, but it has gotten better. Now things like equal pay and percentages. And I mean, you know, there's work to do. What do you think is a tangible step in the right direction from where we are now? Because you're right, just like anything, right? Just like civil rights, we are not anywhere near saying that it's gone, but has it changed? Has it improved in some areas? Of course. What do you identify now from your vantage point as an approachable problem that Hollywood can actually solve? Like what's a chewable bite? Well, there need to be more senior film executives that are Black that have the green light power. But, you know, the green light power is that senior suite of people, heads of marketing, heads of distribution, presidents of studios, presidents of production of studios. And you can look around and there's still like one Black person at most of these students, maybe, if you're, if you're lucky. Television has fared better, but there's still not enough diversity within the ranks. There are not enough Asian executives. There's certainly not enough 
Latinx executives. And it's reflected in the dearth of product on TV or in film because you need people with different perspectives in the room to advocate. Something that I'm often thinking about weighing in on measuring is whether or not these initiatives, these pledges, we're going to commit to 50% women of color in our writers' rooms, or we're going to set a benchmark of X percent of people of color or diversity on our staff and in our studios. I'm always kind of going back and forth, like, is that real or is that performative? And I want to ask you, does it matter? Does it actually matter whether it's a deep-rooted desire for change or a response to what's going on in our society and the calls for action? Does it really matter the why as long as we get it done? I don't think the why matters. And I think the truth is it's some combination of both. Mm -hmm. I think it's about the results and it's about ensuring that there's real change and not just momentary change, you know, and I think that is probably the bigger question of how do we make sure this is a movement. And the best way we can do that is to make sure that we are supporting people. So we're setting people up for success. People need to be groomed. They need to be given the opportunity to learn. You know, it doesn't help just to put somebody somewhere just because they're Black or because they're Latinx if they haven't gotten the proper training because you want them to succeed, you know, and because we all know somebody gets in there and it's not necessarily their fault, but they got hired for the wrong reasons. And then it's like, see, you know, we had one of them. It didn't work. You know, it's like you want people to go in there and who can be kick ass and keep going and keep their foot in that door and pulling other people in behind them. You told me a story a long time ago that I'm hoping you'll share here on Acting Up about a time where you asked for some new talent, I think, from USC, right? (laughs) You wanted to pass the baton a little bit and give someone a chance. And who was that someone? Yeah, so I was running Denzel's company. We'd had a couple of, you know, good, really good white interns from USC. And I called whoever, and I was like, look, this is a great opportunity for someone who is Black. I want your great Black student, not just a, just because, but somebody who's great. And I got Shonda Rhimes. And so Shonda... Oh, my God. <laughs> so I gave her her first paid writing job, which was, we did a documentary on Hank Aaron, you know, we we just lost recently, and it was a dramatization portion of it, and Shonda wrote that, and then hired her to write three movies for me, including Princess Diaries 2. Oh, gosh. And look at her now, right? We were just talking about Bridgerton. Not doing bad, that girl. Yeah, good call, Deborah. Really good call on that. It's funny you mentioned Shonda writing The Princess Diaries because that is this other thing um, that I'm constantly running into, which is like, yes, of course, we need more Black stories. We need more Black people telling Black stories. But the notion that Black people can only tell Black stories is so preposterous when you sit back and you look at some of the most successful mainstream films, shows, franchises that have been written and created and produced and helmed by Black folks all along, like The Princess Diaries. Right? Yeah. No, but that was precisely the point. You know, I looked around at that point and I was like, okay, the studios were only making three, four Black movies a year in total. All the studios, you know, cumulative output. Wow. And everybody and their mama could play in that field. 
And yet black people were not making white movies, which were the majority of the movies being made. So I'm just like, as a business proposition, this doesn't make sense. So I went to the agencies and I was like, look, you need to send me what you send the white men. Like, why are you, I don't need you to triage my material. Like, just, you know, <laughs> let me decide what I'm interested in. And that's how I got the Princess Diaries. I mean, it was a combination where I just, had, we'd done Cinderella, which, you know, had been a big deal. And um, the book came in, it had been turned down by like 17 different publishers. Um, this, it was in manuscript form, but they thought of me because of Cinderella and um, and because I'd just been on this rampage about sending me white stuff. And um, and I read it that night, because I remember, and I loved it. And it, I mean, that's one of the shortest runways I've ever had on a motion picture because you could just see what the movie could be. Disney bought it. They needed product. I was at the press conference for Princess Diaries and there was a white female reporter from the Washington Post. And she asked me, she said, did you ever think about changing the lead character? And I knew what she was saying. And I said, no, I don't understand the question. Why would I change her? And she said, well, she, you know, European princess. And I said, and still, I'm not understanding your question. And she turned bright red and shut up because, you know, she was trying to say to me, well, why would you make a, a movie about a white European princess? Right. Crazy. Why wouldn't I? <laughs> why wouldn't I? Like, I'm a person of the world. Talk about what you're doing right now. So excited about the Equalizer, I really am, and it's been a really tough production because it's very ambitious. But my God, I just think Queen Latifah is doing a terrific job. I mean, I'm prejudiced, you know. This character was built for her. We got in with the title, and we were married with the most wonderful showrunners, and we all spent a lot of time talking about what we wanted the show to be, who we wanted her character to be, the feel of her, the fact that we wanted her to be a Black woman, not just a woman. That was old school, that today she needed to be a woman who was very comfortable in her Blackness, you know, like a real woman. And Queen Latifah was just so down for the action. You know, she's worked really hard training and with our stunt coordinator, the motorcycles, that's her. She's groundbreaking, but she's also, I think, very relatable. And at her core, we wanted her to represent most women who are struggling to find balance in their life, right? Between work and kids and personal life and professional obligations. She'll face off with the toughest bad guy there is, but like she's in a quandary with her teenage daughter, you know, trying to navigate that world. So I think Queen Latifah brings an accessibility and warmth to everything that she does. And so I think this mixture of badass and single mom is people are, are, you know, thankfully relating to. Deborah, I could talk to you forever. I want to talk to you forever, but I know I have to let you go. Thank you so much for joining me on Acting Up today. This was such a pleasure. Uh, thank you. You take care.
Janine Milner has been a voice advocating for Black parents and Black children for so long, primarily through the work that she has done in the children's book space. She has written so many books that line my kids' shelves. And she is the founder of My Brown Baby, which at the time was really the only resource of its kind for expecting mothers, new mothers, and parents who were navigating parenting while Black. And so I wanted to talk to Denine about how the Black family is portrayed in these books and on screen. My Brown Baby, I think I told you, was really like a lifeline. In the beginning, when I when I started writing books, My Brown Baby was a complete exploration of these kids and the way that I was raising them and what I was thinking about as a Black mom. I was, I was never the type of mom who punished. I didn't hit my kids. I got a lot of flack about that from, you know, like my online community that, that just, you know, kind of, well, not, not everybody, but, you know, like the running narrative over the years was, you know, and, and eventually it evolved, but it began with me having, you know, like straight up sparring debates with black, other black mothers about like not beating the hell out of my kids. And I'm like, I'm actually smarter than they are. I can figure out how to get them to do what I need them to do. Right. Without hitting them. And, you know, like my mode of discipline and I'm not going to take away, um, you know, like my ex-husband's, you know, parenting um, abilities and choices. But we both decided that we would present consequences to our kids and help them to understand that if you do this, this could happen or this could happen. If you do that, this could happen or that can happen. And you now you decide what it is that you think would work best in this in this in this moment. And those kind that kind of um, freedom for them, because that's what it really was. It was freedom for them to make their choices, even as little kids. I think that contributes to their ability to um, be independent and make good choices and me to trust that they are. How old are they? Mari is 22 and Lila's 18. You know, I'm so glad you said what you said about the discipline because, I mean, backing up, like I said, my brown baby at the time, there was nothing else like it. And now there are certainly a few more resources. There is more focus on prenatal health care for Black women and the inequities there. And there are certainly like more discussions. We're seeing more products catered to us, marketed to us. But back then, I mean, it was certainly like a drought. And similarly, I would say before you came on with all of your publishing for children and children of color, same, like total drought. When I go to the bookstore now, I am still shocked at how many choices there are, even like at Target. You know, I went to Target for one thing yesterday. I never used to have to worry about my kids or myself wanting to splurge on books with black kids on the cover because they weren't there. And now I actually have to like choose and budget because I really can take my pick. But My Brown Baby was so innovative and it filled such a gaping hole in the marketplace and in the culture for conversations about parenting while Black. 
which I would argue is a very different experience than parenting while anything else in this country today. Without question, you know, my background is as a journalist. I worked as a political reporter, then an entertainment journalist. Then I went to Honey and worked as an editor there. And then I went to parenting, which is what changed the trajectory of not just my career, but my journey as a mother, right? I took the gig because they paid more than honey. I had two little babies, like Lila had just been born and Mm. Mari was only three. And I went over and I went there with the mission of, okay, I'm going to learn about my own kids. Like I'm using this as an opportunity to kind of dig into who are these human beings and what am I supposed to expect for real, right? And then the flip side to that was, I'm the only black person in the room from the rooter to the tutor from the editor-in-chief down to the person who cleans the toilets. So I got to represent here. I have to put my foot down and say in a meeting, now that's not everybody. That's not the way that all of us do this. And you can't say all mothers because I don't do it this way and neither do my friends. Right. And no indictment on you. And that's certainly no indictment on us, but like, be clear. You're not speaking to us when you write it like that. You're not letting us feel like we have a stake in parenting, which is literally the title of the magazine. If every time I open up the magazine, every black child that I see is really ambiguous. Like find me some little black girls with some pigtails and some barrettes that wear, you know, like lace socks and shiny shoes and go to church on Sunday morning and no how to sing hymns. Show me those little black girls. Cause that's a very specific little black girl that kind of opened the door for me to do my Brown baby in the way that I wanted to do it because I just wasn't able to do it at parenting in any kind of grand way. When blogging was starting and all of these so-called mommy blogs were out there, it was very clear. They weren't speaking to me and mine. No, not it's at like, all. Let me try it. Let me see. Let me see what I can do. Absolutely. And there certainly was nowhere to address some of the cultural aspects of parenting while Black, one of which you just mentioned, which is discipline. I am of the same school. Like, I have never, and I didn't even set out like, I'm not doing this. I am being so honest when I tell you, there has never been a moment where I even felt like striking my baby. Like, what are you talking about in real life? (laughs) Right, right, right. Like, are you kidding me? Like, have you met them? Like, why would I physically injure them? Like, it's. I feel like I've never been in a place where like, ooh, I wish I could, right. but I won't have to restrain myself. Like, it never has even occurred to me. I've also never like been so mad at my dog. I wanted to like light it on fire. I mean, it's just, right, exactly. exactly. It's that crazy to right. me. Right. And you know, she has a brain that would remember that I hit her or him. I have a son too. And I just could not even fathom the look on their faces if I was somehow the source of physical pain. This world is such a source of uncontrollable, relentless trauma at times. And I feel like not to take us back a hundred years, but you know, through all my accomplishments, my education, my profession, my friendships, I feel like I was put on this earth to protect and nurture those two souls. There it is. Right? That's it. Like it's innate. There it is. And how could I ever be the one that inflicts that kind of trauma? I mean, they're traumatized if I tell them like, go to your room. You can't have an ice cream. That was Mari and Lila. Like if you 
told Mari, you can't read that book now. And this is the way that I was when I was a kid. You take a book away from Mari and she'd be devastated. Right. Her, tell her that she couldn't get on the internet and it would be done. But in, in my mind though, like, no, I still will never whoop my child. Like it's never even dawned on me. And it's not like I'm sitting here like, well, you know, I got a spanking or two, but I wasn't traumatized. It's not like I judge other parents who have other forms of discipline and do spank or do whatever they do. I just know, like, turns out, newsflash, that is not me. And having this conversation, I'm sitting here thinking about the listeners, like, I wonder if they're going to think I'm crazy for that. Because all of the representation that we see of Black parenting would tell you that you and I having this conversation and having these thoughts on this are in the minority. And what about that kind of representation of kids and Black families and Black parenting? You and I can talk about these beautiful books all day, all of these animation projects and cartoons that are being greenlit, and Disney got another brown princess over here, and they're bringing Brandy back for Cinderella. Yay, world. But okay, fine. Next. Like, what else? What about the representation of a Black family who doesn't communicate by screaming, who isn't battling a drug addiction, who, you know, a strong Black mother who isn't strong because she'll whoop your ass, but she's strong because she's teaching you emotional intelligence. You know, some of us do that. Absolutely. And that is the entire point of Deneen Milner books is to show the humanity of Black children and families. And I cannot stress it enough. It is very much the next sort of entree from my brown baby to what I'm doing and advocating on the page in children's picture books. Like, first of all, children deserve to see themselves on a page, right? And they deserve to see themselves on a page and not in this time capsule of, you know, like, we were slaves and then Martin Luther King had a dream and Harriet Tubman saved some people. And, you know, that was it forever. And, and now we're free. That's it. And now we're free and we good. Like, like, like that, that's, that's where so many of the books live. Right. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with those books and not at all because our children need to, and deserve to know their history. But I submit that when I was walking into bookstores, again, my kids are 21 and 18. And when I was walking into bookstores, you couldn't just pick up your phone and order on Amazon or, you know, see somebody interviewed on the internet and then buy it right there on your phone by clicking a link and then pushing one button and it shows up on your doorstep two days later. Like that wasn't the way that it worked. You had to depend on the bookstore to have the wherewithal to know that the book existed, to have a buyer who actually actually thought that they had an audience that would buy the book and to see the efficacy of it. And that was rare. Like if it were not for Black bookstores in the 90s and the 2000s, Black books featuring Black families and children just didn't exist. And so, you know, these days, Deneen Milner Books is specifically about showing these families in the way that's meaningful, that looks like your house and my house and my girl's house and your girl's house and how our children first learn how to ride a bike, how they get scared of the tooth fairy, how, uh, like, I have a book 
out with a black Santa eating cornbread. Like this is like, this is, this is a thing that, you know, like we do in our homes. And I would submit that we need to see it because we need to understand that those crazy videos on TikTok or Instagram may be funny. And there may be something to relate to a mom beating you up because she's waking you up in the morning, but like, that's not normal. And that's not, it may be funny, but it's not cool to act happen in person or for real. And, you know, like there are a whole bunch of us who do it in a different way, um, particularly now. And that needs to be celebrated, not just so that we can see that, but also so that all of these other communities that sort of look at those kinds of representations and make all kinds of observations about us that aren't necessarily true or right so that they could see that what our lives for real look like on a page. You know, and there's so many Black creators out there, authors, storytellers. Nobody tells stories better than Black folks. And like there's, if you look at the statistics for the numbers of children's books that actually feature Black families, I think the last time that they counted it was 2019, and there were about 3,200 books, and of that, only about 200 featured Black or um, Black children and families, and of that 200 or so, only... 9% were actually written or illustrated by Black people. So basically what you're telling me is Black people can't tell our own stories. We can't illustrate our own stories. And it's very rare that our stories actually make it into the page. That's craziness to me when folks are marching up and down the street saying Black Lives Matter. Well, there's no other way to bring that to the fore, particularly for our children, than to be able to hand them a book that says, you do matter. And I see your life. I see how you live. I see how you think. I see what makes you laugh. I see what makes you learn. I see what makes you grow. And it's right here in this book. And so that's what we're trying to do at Denise Milner Books, for real. I'm so grateful that even though your kids are grown up now, you're still, you know, you're still here for all of us in these trenches that in 2021 feel just as stark as ever. And then again, of course, I want to acknowledge the strides that we've made. I want to acknowledge my daughter grew up with Doc McStuffins or my son has seen a Black Spider-Man already. And, and there are, I'm seeing trends and I'm also seeing trends in books turning into on-screen projects. Lupita has one headed to Netflix. Right, right. Right. And HBO is cooking up some kids content for people of color. There are so many strides being made, but of course, just like anything else having to do with Hollywood and entertainment in this country, it's certainly not enough. It's not fast enough. And I just want to commend you on really, I think being a pioneer in that space and making room for all of us to have conversations like this and feel seen and normal and understood and represented. And I hope that you continue that work as your kids continue to grow. Thank you. I mean, I stand on some pretty broad shoulders. There are plenty of authors and editors who come before me who tried really hard to honor the space and honor our families and children and telling our stories on the page. You know, like I have a very specific mission and that mission is to avoid the stereotype that I think paints us into this, again, that little box. And to say that we are some colorful, beautiful people and our kids are some colorful, beautiful little beings, and they deserve to see that color on the page. I'm really, really proud of the work that we're doing. And I'm so proud of you doing it. Thank you. 
So it's a little crazy that I had this conversation with Deneen just days before footage from the Montgomery County Police Department in Maryland was released of a police officer berating this five-year-old boy before handcuffing him. The officer was asking him questions like, does your mama spank you? She's going to spank you today. I mean, assuming that this child is accustomed to being beaten and spoken to like an adult. And it just, that horrifying footage, it's so hard to watch, but it's a staunch reminder that the way that Black children are represented in the media, the way that they're represented on screen, and the way that Black parenting is represented on screen has a real effect out in the world. I mean, this police officer was not this person's parent and this police officer was Black. And the fact is people do assume that this is the way that Black children are treated and should be treated. And it's just, it's astounding and it's heartbreaking and it has got to change. My next guest on Acting Up is the magnificent rising star, Lexi Underwood. Lexi starred alongside Carrie Washington and Reese Witherspoon in Little Fires Everywhere. And she even earned an Image Award nom, which if you haven't seen that, back it up, make some time, carve it out, watch it. It's a show on Hulu that for me explained white privilege in a way that I haven't seen that I actually felt like, you know what? Some of the white women I know really need to see this because Reese did such an incredible job of portraying the well-meaning white woman who really doesn't see herself in this equation, whose microaggressions are such a huge part of the problem. That was a really powerful project and Lexi was fantastic in it. She also has a bit of a history with Disney. She's been on a few of their shows like Walk the Prank, Raven's Home, and she also had like a four episode stint on Netflix's Family Reunion, which is another really funny family show that you should be tuning into if you're looking for some kid-friendly content. Content. She's gearing up to star as Malia Obama in Showtime's upcoming project, The First Lady. The reason I wanted to talk to Lexi today is because she has been so open with me over the years about how seriously she takes her craft and her career. And I think that that's evident in the kind of roles that she's already selected and in the kind of work that we've already seen from her. I stumbled across this project from Tangle Teaser, which was a short animation project that recentered the story of Rapunzel with a Black character and Lexi voices the little princess. So I really wanted to talk to her about that and why it was important for her to take that on. Lexi, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. I'm also really excited because of your latest project, Zell Let Out Your Hair. Mm -hmm. It is part of this three installments of books written by Trish Cook Mm -hmm. for Harry Tales, which we know is inspired by well-known fairy tales and replaces the traditional looking princess with little Black kids. And I could not be happier. Talk to me about what it was like to participate in that project. It was absolutely lovely. I mean, I grew up seeing a lack of accurate representation when it comes to Black girls and Black women in the media. Oftentimes, I feel Black female artists are given stereotypical roles or storylines that don't accurately depict the full experience of what it is to be a Black woman, Mm -hmm. which can be a plethora of many different things. I mean, growing up, I don't know, it just would have meant the world to me and my friends to see animation characters or to open up a book and see somebody 
that looks like us. That that just would have meant the world to us. You know, we always hear that representation matters, but that sentiment cannot be overstated. When we see ourselves in a positive light, in an array of hues of our own natural hair, being the heroes, princesses, smart friends, scientists, or even the focal point of an amazing story that stretches the prescribed stereotypes that have limited the way society sees us, it creates momentum for us to take up space and step into our full potential. And, you know, I experienced hair discrimination growing up, and it definitely took me a while to embrace my curls due to society's incredibly limited beauty standards. But now I'm 17, and I can proudly say that I love my curls and the skin I'm in. And so being a part of this project and, you know, being just a small part of being able to help, you know, especially little black and and brown girls and boys everywhere, help them feel represented and feel seen and make them feel beautiful and let them know that no matter what your skin type is or no matter what your hair type is or no matter, you know, where you come from or what language you speak, you know, you're beautiful and you don't have to change a single thing about you to fit in. And, you know, what you said is so true, like the effect that not seeing themselves on screen as children has on Black kids, it really can't be overstated. And I'm learning that as a mom. Um, I have a little girl who's five, and I can't tell you how much it hurt me when I first heard her say that she hated her hair. And oddly enough, it was when she got into Tangled. She wanted Rapunzel hair. I want long hair. I want straight hair. Why does my hair look like this? And we've, I mean, it's something that we kind of constantly have to work at. And I mean, me and my job, there's there's always Black people on screen. There's always, you know, a million examples of beautiful Black women of every shade, every size, every hair texture represented in our house. And she still somehow, you know, really starting at four years old, already internalized that the princesses, the winners, the pretty ones don't look like her. And that shit stings. Like, wow. Absolutely. Yeah, it really does. It has a major effect on your self-esteem as well. When you are living in a society that tells you that you aren't everything that beautiful is in their eyes, it really is damaging to your self-esteem, especially now with social media. You're comparing your life to I'm trying to think of the words to even describe like just the facade that social media is. Yeah. You're comparing your life and yourself to this thing that somebody has created, this life that they've cultivated online to make it seem like they're perfect and everything is perfect. When underneath, we don't actually realize that we're all human beings and we're all going through the same thing. We're all worried about what people think of us. We're all worried. We all have our own insecurities. And so it's really challenging right now especially to be not only a black girl in the society but just a teen in the society as well a hundred percent and of course we are seeing more projects like this whether it's the success of Matthew Cherry's hair love mm-hmm. or just the increased rate of Black animation projects that we're seeing. Netflix is releasing some. Lupita Nyong'o's book is turning into a kid's series. And then even for older skewing animation, we're seeing that across the board. 
Michael B. Jordan just signed my friend Obi, who is this incredible animator, to turn his social media comic strip into a show. And I think that starting with animation, starting with kids, that conversation has to start there. 17 is too late for you to start loving your curls, in all honesty. In this day and age, you know, it should be happening a lot sooner. And I think that the only way that we get there is by these kinds of books being written and these kinds of animation series being produced. And what I love so much about Hairy Tales is that it really does focus on the hair, something that I realize already makes my five-year-old feel othered right? Like when she's watching Fancy Nancy get dressed in two seconds, there's not a 15 minute timeout for her mom to put grease in her hair and to kind of normalize that sequence of events that's part of her every day. And I just love that you guys kind of tackled that head on and made it fun and made it beautiful. And I'm just so grateful. So glad that makes my heart happy. What's next for you is a lot of things. We just got the news that you're going to be playing another really famous teenager, Malia Obama, in the upcoming um, anthology series at Showtime, I believe. So talk to me about what that's like. How exciting. (laughs) Well, I mean, I'm still pinching myself. Um, It's really surreal to me. It hasn't like sunk in yet. I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm nervous. I hope that, I don't know. I just, I really want to, you know, do her justice and I hope that I make her proud. I'm really excited. It was kind of strange because once the announcement came out, somebody had tweeted a video of me doing an interview during Little Fires Everywhere. And it was a video of me saying that the person that I wanted to work with next was actually Viola Davis. And so it was like a really weird, like full circle moment. It was kind of like, you know, I spoke it into existence, which is really wonderful, but I'm honestly just honored to be a part of a project that is celebrating so many incredible women and to be a part of a storyline celebrating none other than the incredible Miss Michelle Obama. I'm absolutely honored. We continue to be so proud of you, how you carry yourself, how you navigate this industry, and how you're really showing up and setting such a great example for so many of your young fans. So thank you for joining me today. It's always a pleasure. Thank Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to Acting Up. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcasts at thegrio.com. Acting Up is brought to you by The Grio, an executive produced by Courtney Wills and produced by Cameron Blackwell. For more with me and Acting Up, check us out on Instagram at actingup.pod. 